Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have with us Farmhouse Pound Cakes, and we'll be interviewing Ellen Daw of Cornelius, Georgia. How are you doing today, Ellen? I'm doing great, Justin. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on, by the way. Oh, you're very welcome. I love having everyone on and learning their stories. So tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are in forming the business Farmhouse Pound Cakes. Well, there is a, a, a bit of a backstory to this. Um, my husband was an equine veterinarian. We lived in Ocala, Florida, and he ended up getting sick. Um, it was a long illness. One of my therapies, so to speak, was baking. Um, so I did a lot of baking and uh, ended up being his caregiver. Um, in 2012, he passed away. Um, and we moved back to Florida or to Georgia to be close to family. Um, had a little farm in Gwinnett County. I went, was trying to figure out what to do. I managed his business in Ocala. I also worked as an equine sports massage therapist and um, just the distance between the farms up here, I, I needed to do something else. And um, so a friend of mine that I'd known for years is a soaker, and she knew I was going organic and looking for something. So she invited me over to her house one day. She said, I'm going to share with you a recipe for organic laundry soap. And so we had a great time in our kitchen that day and made all this laundry soap. And it's really cool and nice and jars. And she packed it all up and she said, now you need to get into a festival. So um, she said, here's a Brazelton three-day festival. So I signed up for this and ordered my tent and tables and um, had sort of a, you know, set up going for someone that doesn't know anything about festivals. And uh, I was there. And the first day I thought, there's just not enough stuff on my table. So I went home that night, and I had pound cake in the freezer. So I bought it out, sliced it up, brought it in the next day, and sold it by the slice. And people, I sold some of the laundry soap, but people kept coming back for more pound cake. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I see what's going on here. And I went home, and I researched um, what do I need to do to do this legally. Um, I really enjoy, I'm a people person and love the atmosphere of um, being at a festival and meeting all these customers and talking to them. And so I got my cottage food license. Uh, There's a local uh, strawberry farm, Washington Farm Strawberries, that uh, was opening. It was their season right then. And um, so someone said, you really should sell your pound, pound cakes and strawberries go so well together. They had never had a vendor there. So I went and talked to um, the owners, and uh, their daughter actually has a nonprofit in uh, Africa where she helps um, um, unwed young mothers. And uh, so we, we talked, and they said, we'd love to have you, and if you can just make a donation to her nonprofit, that was great. So that's that was sort of my first event and um, it was so much fun. I've got a picture of the strawberry fields behind me with a little setup and got to meet more customers and really enjoyed um, the interaction with all the people. And so now I need to, strawberry season was over and what am I going to do now? So I got into a little farmer's market that was local and it was little, but it felt big to me. Um, so I did that for a while and then I started talking to the other vendors there and, bigger farmers markets and there's more festivals that people do 
And so um, that was my goal. So I got into a couple more festivals. And I always like to, you know, let's, let's go bigger. <laughs> and uh, so I got my commercial kitchen. I just converted my garage on my farm into a commercial kitchen because there was a farmer's market I really wanted to be a part of. And that was one of the requirements. They wouldn't accept um, a cottage food license. And so I um, got into that festival and um, more into that farmer's market and then to larger festivals and then I started doing online sales and I didn't push it too too much because I didn't want to get overwhelmed um, had a part-time employee and then last um, last summer I decided I just didn't want to be in Gwinnett County is really growing there's tons of traffic and I'm also from the Shenandoah Valley so I love seeing mountains okay. and I bought a historic home up in the northeast Georgia mountains and have now I have a little commercial kitchen here. And just most recently, um, I was able to open a retail spot in my living room, which is great because I love the history. Um, growing up in the Shendo Valley, the ha house I was raised in was built in the late 1700s. This home was built in 1832, and I have a lot of um, history that goes with the, the property here. So I just thought this is a great place to start selling. I went to ease off on the festival so much. That's a lot of work and uh, kind of I'm doing, I'm in a couple of local stores, um, the village market and Satinacucci for one. And um, so I try to incorporate using local ingredients. So there's some, there's a lavender farm close by. And of course I use Washington farm strawberries and, try to also promote um, Georgia grown products. So I offer um, Gumping Goat Coffee, which is a Georgia grown local roaster. And um, so this is kind of where I am right now. Well, um, and I'm sorry to hear about your husband. I don't, I can't even imagine what's that's, that's like, obviously. So, um, but let, tell me a little bit about the products that you have. And I, I, We'll go back into the starting of your business, but let's talk about where people can find you, how they can find you on social media, and then the different types of pound cakes that you have. Sure. Well, the easiest way, of course, is to go online, um, farmhousepoundcakes.com, and I have um, a list of some of my top-selling pound cakes there. Um, so I ship all over the country. I also offer, because I just, you know, can't make those pound cakes. I do granola. I've got a great biscotti recipe. And um, so I offer that for sale as well. And but I also have an event page on my website that lists the festivals and things that I'm attending so that people can also go there. But most recently, I'm open at my location here in Cornelia on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays from 11 to 4. So that's that's what I'm doing this year. Next year, the goal is to be open four days a week, open Saturdays, and to pull in. Um, either they're going to the mountains to Helen. There's a lot of tourism that um, comes to the Northeast Georgia mountains. So um, that's the goal next year. And, and, and just so I'm clear, as a recap, so you have the website, you have the Instagram, but you also have an actual physical store that you – um, that you sell your pound cakes out of. Is it only the pound cakes you sell out of your store? Well, I sell pound cakes, um, biscotti, 
and uh, granola. The granola yep. I started when I was doing farmer's markets. Um, I had a good recipe. We made it here. And so one day I took it and now I have some people that are addicted to it. So it's um, pretty good. It's all organic. Um, uh, maple cranberry is um, the one that I offer online and in a one pound bag and um, $8. And that's good. It's pretty good <laughs> granola. <laughs> And the biscotti is really good. It's my aunt Irene was from Italy, and I was she was known for biscotti, and I was the lucky recipient of the recipe. So, um, yeah, so I offer that for sale right now. I might add more um, as I go down the road. I'm not sure. That's just sort of where I am right now. And Dumping Goat Coffee, which is a roaster in Helen, they just opened another location just outside of Cleveland. And uh, then the village, um, the village market in Satinakuchi carries my cakes. So that's another place for pickup. So I mean, we're just sort of starting to branch out with that. It's a great story. I mean, just uh, obviously there's hardship there, and then, but out of hardship, you've you've created a business for yourself and this you know, blossoming entrepreneurial business and food and in a great state, in my opinion. That's really helping harness um, and propel, you know, food businesses is the state of Georgia and the Georgia grown and things like the flavor of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to, I want to go into it a little bit and, and talk about, I mean, so how did you come up with your name and your logo? I mean, let's start there and part of your story, because I'm assuming that was at the beginning or is it something you developed over time? Well, all of it is a development over time. The name actually was Farmhouse because I had a farmhouse. Um, and I was trying to, it's an old-fashioned um, pound cake, and that was this, the direction I was going with this is um, we're in the South. People like things that are Southern. It, pound cake is Southern. It's old-fashioned. I had a farmhouse. It just seemed like the thing. Um, when I first started, I actually had laying hens. My farm was animal welfare approved. And so my goal in the beginning was all my laying hens. I would have fresh eggs that were laid and they would go into my pound cakes. And that quickly ended up, I had 42 hens. And even that number um, was a job just to take care of the chickens. And did they produce enough eggs actually to, to keep up with your, the pound cake production? In the very beginning. And now, no, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I can, because I deal with eggs quite a bit in breakfast for hospitals and long-term care homes. And uh, and just the amount of chickens it takes to lay enough eggs for us to do do that, I was just curious because, you know, and then trying to maintain all the chickens. It's, uh, it's quite a oh, process. Yeah. It was, it was. It was fun. We really enjoyed it. I grew up... Um, uh, on a little farm and you know i like the atmosphere and we've never had chickens before and chickens are great but um i know that was becoming more of um a job in itself um taking care of all these hens uh so and the setup for them and to be animal welfare approved and and then when you have coyotes and hawks and all sorts of worries that come along with that because they're free range um so yeah 
Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit, the coyotes, because I think, um, well, we have them here in Colorado. And actually, when I grew up in Maryland in the farm, we didn't really have them that much. So they weren't as mm-hmm. much of a threat, although I know they're coming into every state now. They've, they basically are multiplying rapidly and moving across areas that they hadn't been in before. But so how do you manage that? I mean, you have coyotes come on your property and they obviously eat the chickens because they're easy meals and coyotes are some of the smartest hunters for anyone who doesn't know they they are very creative animals so if they, they want to eat the dog that's on your property or your pet they'll actually yeah. and it's a male dog they'll put a female they'll laurel the female in to laurel the dog to yeah i can't speak this morning yeah to to get the male dog to follow the female coyote out and then they'll they'll get it out of its normal territory and then attack it and eat it and it's just and and all sorts of things i watch them with the geese here in colorado and they'll actually have one chase the geese towards the other two or three and as the geese Mm -hmm. are trying to fly away the other two or three are jumping in the air and in and getting a goose each literally and it's just it mind boggles me how intelligent they are at hunting and um, and how they do it as a pact. And it's and it's very, you know, laid out. So I don't even know how you battle that with chickens. Well, um, I had predator-proof coops. So that they go into lockdown at night is what I would say. But, um, they like to go into their coop or in the wild they would nest and roost in trees. But uh, they would go into the coop at night and be locked down and um, um, and then let out in the morning. Now, coyotes hunt all the time. <laughs> so I saw one down at my coop um, looking out the window. And this was a quarter to 12. I looked at the clock um, almost lunchtime. And it was just trotting out there, not a pack. This was just a lone one um, that was out. But there were also cow pastures and um in the area and I remember occasionally hearing you would hear a pack howl at night and it's that's a terrifying noise yeah because it sounds like there's tons of them yeah and uh yeah I mean it's crazy because I mean here we have them as well and uh they howl and uh we have some land here in Colorado but also the baby coyote cubs sound like children crying and it's like Uh, it's the craziest thing. Like you're like, is someone hurt or stranded in the woods? But it's actually, it took me a few years before I got used to it. But I mean, they're just, uh, they're unbelievable. And I mean, they'll run right through our yard midday. And, um, what we, what we figured out is they'll always send out one to do the scouting and then, um, and then they come back. And at night, sometimes it's, it's a horrific sound when they get an animal and we have woods and things behind us. So, the deer and they don't tend to go after the deer as much because we have mule deer here, but it's, uh, it's kind of crazy how they go after the animals and the noise, the screaming. I mean, it's like, it's literally bloody murder and it's, uh, yes, it is. And, no. I mean, they're, and they're ruthless once they get it. And so, I mean, we've had raccoons go down and, uh, and obviously geese cause we have a pond next door. So there's a lot of geese here that when they're flying South, for the winter, I guess, and north during mm-hmm. the summer. Um, they do the opposite schedule of what people tend to do. And uh, it's just, uh, it's nuts, though. And they get them. And the, whether it's rabbits or, or squirrels or whatever, I mean, sometimes we'll just see the squirrel tail laying there. And it's like, oh, man. Yeah. 
But uh, I didn't mean yeah. to get off on a tangent, but we hadn't talked about it on this podcast. But I think part of like running a farm and it's not as easy as everyone thinks to begin with, but then let alone you, the coyotes start entering the picture and it becomes a whole new world. So it really does. And there's a lot of whole, whole lot of worries that you have to go through. And um, when people just go, I'm going to get a farm or I'm, or they have a couple acres and I'm going to get uh, chickens or I'll have goats or whatever. You really have to take these things into consideration because you won't have them long. Um, Great Pyrenees, the farm dogs are great to have on a farm. Um, They're, they're good. our dogs as well as um, donkeys. A lot of people have mules, donkeys, yeah. um, because those have an alarm and those they play an important role and uh, makes them sound. There's, there's a lot of coyotes, which is a worry, um, but they're actually cool animals. <laughs> nobody, nobody says that except me. But they're they're really smart and uh, they're just smart dogs, essentially. You know, yeah. well, they're, they're wild. But- they're the dogs without domestication really and people don't dogs are smart also i mean it's i mean my dog definitely has me played out he knows that i'll give him a treat he's pretty smart in the way he manages me and everything else so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean just take that intelligence and and put it out there and they'll figure out how to feed themselves and and get what they need and they know where the easiest food is that's for sure and cats and dogs and stuff and people leave them out and they're easy prey you know so they think you know domesticated dogs thinks it's just another dog and uh the coyotes lure them it's it's interesting and i can you can see their intelligence too when you look at them and a few years ago i was actually walking my dog uh where we lived at a different house and um and my sister-in-law's dog as well and because uh, they were out of town and literally I had three coyotes start following us on oh, the trail gosh. and I had them on leashes. Thank goodness. But it was, yeah. but what they were doing is then they would lure me. And then actually one came to the front of us eventually, like about a mile down the road, eventually one popped out the front and I'm like, oh, oh, wow. okay, they're not scared of me. And it's like one o'clock in the afternoon. So like, how do I do this? They're really hungry. Yeah. So I called Deborah and I'm like, okay, like, what do I do here? Like I am like literally surrounded by coyotes. I can't go off the trail because it's on a canal. So I'd go into the water or into this woods area, which would be worse. And she's just like, make a lot of noise or wait for someone else to come up or whatever. And thank goodness, like a guy came on his, on his bike and, uh, eventually and helped me out, just scare him off. Because it was like, I mean, so they were just waiting for me. And I'm like, are they really not scared of me? And they're just not scared anymore here. I mean, they'll literally come right up to the house or or see if there's any food laying around or run right by the front door. I mean, it's not a, it's a crazy thing. I know we're off on a tangent, but I just, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, and to further the tangent, um, I was coming home from visiting my son at college and just right up around the corner shortly after I moved in. And you probably experienced this too. First time I saw a bear out of the zoo, <laughs> it was right here, just a quarter mile from my house. And also speaking of like walking your dog or whatever, we moved up from Florida and down there it's the alligators. So it's, yes, you have to be aware of the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm pretty, 
I'm pretty fortunate. Um, well, in Colorado, I've only, only seen one bear, and I was we were up, up in the mountains. Um, I was with a dog also, but we were up in the mountains just hiking. So it's the only time I've seen one here. But in Maryland, we I used to see black bears all the time uh, hiking oh, yeah. and around the farm and stuff like that. And they're pretty docile uh, comparatively. They they are scared, but I hear the you know the brown bears and the grizzly bears are not as lenient but i guess if you back a black bear into a corner or split him split a mother and a cub that yeah. you're in pretty much not good place so true uh, that's yeah. not good but my parents did the same thing they got donkeys and i do hear that the pyrenees dogs will actually attack the the coyotes so yeah i mean and most dogs if they're in a pack um, will protect the farm or, or whatever the larger dogs from what I hear. I know St. Bernard's are good at taking, getting rid of coyotes and things like that as well, but they need to be in a mm-hmm. more than one because they don't stand a chance as one. And, that's right. uh, and so that's kind of interesting thing, you know, um, I can't even imagine. It's just, and it's awful what they do. So, I mean, if you have a pet and it's outside, you have coyotes, you always want to be aware. I mean, I've tried everything. I've tried wolf urine. I've tried all these things to try to get rid of them. I've tried scaring them off. Um, you know, I've tried the motion lights. It just doesn't, they don't care. They, they're no, like, really whatever. Isn't situation out there. No. And it doesn't matter if you have a fence, they jump over it. I mean, the things can okay. jump like I've never seen. Uh, they're pretty amazing. They can leap, you know, from six to seven foot fences. No problem. They'll get themselves right over it. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is just something that's now, you know, instead of being lazy, it's just being smart, right? And making sure the dog's not out by itself and, you know, right. just keeping an eye on things and it's basically what it is. So I can't yeah. imagine what it's yeah, like. I'd worry terrifying. about my chickens. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. That's terrifying. That This really sounds like a much more serious problem out there than it is here right yet. That I have seen more and more. And one of the things I did like about being animal welfare approved, though, is that um, they not only looked at, um, they protected the predators, too, because, you know, they have a life. So, they, you weren't allowed to kill the coyotes or anything. It's like, you, you know, make sure you're, um, or the hawks or, you know, you really, which is a nice concept. Well, I mean, you know, there is an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people don't realize it. And as bad as the coyotes are, and sometimes I wish I could, you know, they wouldn't be around. Uh, they do keep things like the rabbit population in check. And exactly. And I will say that the amount of geese we have, they will eat my entire yard and grass, every bit of grass they can eat the the geese Mm -hmm. eat. So the coyotes sort of keep that balance as well. I mean, the geese would literally eat every freaking blade of grass you have. And, people don't realize it either is actually geese. They, the amount of manure that they produce and it's unbelievable. Oh my gosh, yeah. And uh, yeah. what they do to ponds and creeks and how they kill fish when they're overpopulated and throw off ecosystems. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were just at a pond the other day and it had tons of geese in it and you see the fit, all these dead fish on the shoreline. And it's really just because the, the ponds, it happens about every spring The they're overloaded with the geese and they just, kill off the fish that are in there for a while until fresh water can sort of clean itself out because they manure so much it pollutes the water so bad and uh, and so it's interesting it's a interesting concept and 
the whole thing of keeping everything balanced, not pound cakes, but a very <laughs> not pound so let's go back to the pound cake conversation because I'm, I'm just, I'm very interested. So what year did you actually start as a business? 2014 officially. Okay. So it's been about five years and, mm-hmm. and over yeah. those five years, what have been some of your biggest hardships? Oh, you know, I tried to think about that. Um, everything is trial and error. And there is there is a quote that I like that uh, sort of a motivational quote is do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Of course, that's Maya Angelou. But, um, when a lot of things I'll just jump into and not have the education behind my to, to go forward, such as creating a website. Um, I just went on Wix, and I'm not a young lady. I'm a little bit older, I'm 59, but um, I don't have the technology experience behind me. And so I just create my own website. And um, with a lot of it, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but let's just go ahead and do it, and we'll learn along the way. <laughs> so that's my biggest thing is um, trying to not be discouraged. Um, and I don't get discouraged very often. Um, fortunately when you go on Facebook, I have only five star reviews and there's many, there's 38 of them. I'm not sure, but, um, that's all I want. So if I ever get, um, someone that's not happy with something is all about the customer and I want them to be completely satisfied. I do samples at, um, festivals and events and that's what sells. Uh, you just you can't sell anything unless you or not much of anything unless you do samples. But I always look. I want people to try a sample and be like amazed, incredibly amazed at how good the pound cake is. That's what I, my goal is. So um, that's as far as um, hardships. I really don't. I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, I I'm grateful too. It's. Um, I feel like God's blessed this whole thing and it just keeps pointing me into the direction I need to go. And I think that's far a- where I am right now. It's a little, it's like, I, I've got the festival thing down pat. Um, I do some pretty big ones. Um, it's a challenge to prepare for them because I will sell, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll sell 500 cakes in a weekend. And that's a lot of pound cakes to bake when you don't have, I've, my two sons help me in the kitchen. They are great with um, prepping pans. We hand butter and flour each pan. Um, I don't use a spray. I don't like sprays. And um, just it tastes better when it's butter. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to, uh, to do that. So I've got the vessel thing down pat, but uh, now I'm doing something new. It's the, the retail end and doing a little bit of wholesale so, and I don't have, it's figuring all those new unknowns out. So it's exciting. Is it harder to get to the festivals because of the store or is it something you manage where the stores open during the week and then the festivals are weekends? That's what I'm doing is I've had this store and I just opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're going to be doing a grand opening on May 11, uh, which is a Saturday. It's one week and I don't have a festival. And uh, just inviting people in and have some coffee and pound cake um, uh, to try. And uh, just to get to sit on the front porch of the big 
farmhouse, farmhouse front porch with rocking chairs on it and great little view. Um, yeah. And, um, and because the, by the time this episode airs, the store will be open. Could you give everyone the address and your operating hours just so they know? So if they want to come visit and have some pound cake, they know where it is. Absolutely. The address is 752 Old Athens Highway. That's in Cornelia, Georgia. The zip code is 30531. And it's just off of 985 and Duncan Bridge Road. Duncan Bridge Road is a road that takes you to Helen. Um, 985 takes you straight up to where, okay. awesome North Carolina. It's right up in the corner. Oh, so it's up north uh, in northern Georgia, pretty north then. North of Gainesville, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, what are your operating hours? Right now, it's Wednesday through Friday from 11 to 4. And that was sort of if I do have festivals going on this year and that was the thought is I can be open while I'm baking. People can walk in and smell that wonderful pound cake baking in the oven and um, see if I can create and establish a customer base and hopefully next year not do as many festivals and focus more on online sales, some local wholesale and, um, and then the retail. And I want to talk about the festivals, but I want to just make a comment on something, which is the baking of the food when or pound cakes when people come in. It's something that grocery stores discovered a long time ago that actually people buy more if they smell fresh baked bread in the store. And it's proven true because once people start thinking about food and they get hungry, they buy more. But I think in your case, being able to smell it as well as be able to sample it it's incredible yeah. because now you're giving them two senses and people really remember things that way. And it's quite an incredible thing. And we don't realize it as humans that if they can smell it, touch it and taste it, that you're, you're really making an impact on them. So I think it's a great smell idea. Yes. Yeah, smell it, touch it, taste it. And at the same time, have someone tell you how simple the ingredients are, the quality of the ingredients and if they're local ingredients and, So tell us about that and let's get in more detail. Like why, I mean, we've talked about that. You use local ingredients, you keep them simple. uh, You cared about the animal welfare, you know, tell us about why you're so passionate about that and why you decided to go that route with your pound cakes. Well, because I want the best pound cake possible um, or the best of anything that I bake. I want it to be the best um, quality. And I am concerned about um, as much as pound cake being healthy as possible, not using bleached flour. I use King Arthur unbleached flour. It's certified non-GMO. I like to be able to say this. And part of them, those are concerns I would have normally. But I believe that um, it really helped when I uh, was doing some of the farmer's markets that the focus of the customer base there was they were very health conscious. Um, and I applaud people that support local businesses. And while doing this, while doing the farmer's markets, um, primarily farmer's markets, some of the festivals, but you get to know a lot of food vendors then, people that are growing their own um, their own fruit. Um, sometimes I go to the farmer's markets and get blueberries or strawberries to make my blueberry almond pound cake, or I do a strawberry lavender pound cake, and I use lavender from Red Oak Lavender Farm here in Galanica. Um, so 
Yeah, it's in Nielsen, Massey, Madagascar, bourbon, vanilla, I put vanilla and everything. <laughs> and um, so just trying to use the, if you use the best quality, you're going to have the best flavor. And is, pound cake. is that how you choose the flavors of your pound cake, sort of what's available around you or what you also see at the, the, the festivals and the markets that you go to? Well, I do seasonal. So I, I try to look for when I go shopping for um, any kind of fruit or whatever it has to. I can't just say I can have strawberry all of the time because sometimes the strawberries aren't the best. Um. So, yeah, and, and blueberry, although we will freeze them sometimes so we have them available throughout the year. Blueberry almond I don't have on my um, my website to order, but I just come up with different. Um, we just did a flavor the other day. It turned out really good. That's trial and error also. It was a uh, coffee banana chocolate chip, oh. and uh, that, that was good. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> Like, how would that be? Uh, banana chocolate chip, and it was pretty good. Oh, uh, we love banana bread in our household here, and uh, we actually put chocolate chips in it. Well, I shouldn't say we. I do. I'm a I'm a spectator of this sport, and um, but because I can't bake, cook all day long, and and all that, but baking I have trouble with. Um, and it's actually really a science. It's an amazing science. So I really appreciate yeah. that, and can be like, wow, that what you're doing is amazing. And the trial and error thing, like how you tweak recipes for baking is it's to me, it's totally something so much harder than actual cooking food and, and tweaking recipes. But I love the sound of that, that pound cake for sure. And, and I'm a fan of anything with bananas and or chocolate in it. So there's that. Mm-hmm. So well, there's what a lot of different flavors that I do. Um, I'm also a huge Outlander fan. I don't know if you're familiar with Outlander. No. Okay. It's a series of books by Diana Gabaldon. Very, very popular. It's a huge fan base with this um, almost a cult following. And the first four books are actually out uh, as a series on stars. And I was, I was actually um, looking at my own genealogy and studying that through Ancestry.com and realized I've got a lot of Scotch-Irish and my great-grandmother is a Mackay from the Highlands and um, was reading Outland. I wanted to create a flavor to give a nod towards that. So I came up with the Pipsy Laird, which is an orange whiskey cake. It has dark chocolate bits, a raspberry puree swirled throughout the top, and an orange whiskey glaze. And that's been hugely popular. I was able to get um, a cake to, we call them her, herself, um, to Diana Gabaldon. And she was gracious enough to have a picture uh, taken with uh, the cake and allowed me to use that in my marketing and, and all. But, um, yeah, so I like to do a lot of different flavors of uh, key lime with crushed macadamia nuts on top. Um I just I go on and on with the flavors. It's endless possibilities. Getting back to the banana, though, um, I grew up. My favorite breakfast was banana pancakes, and my mother would put um, brown sugar on top of maple syrup. So I do a maple banana pound uh, pound cake as well. Oh man, I'm so I'm which flavor you want? I'm, I'm going to send you one. Yeah, well, I, all of them sound good. I'm just like, I haven't eaten breakfast this morning. And then, and anyone who's listening in, we're recording. It's 7 a.m. right now in Colorado. And I'm trying to get the coffee down to wake up. But it's like, 
I the part of the problem with this podcast and doing it all the time is I often end up hungry, and I'm just like, right. and I'm already a hungry person as it is, and so go on and on and tell you more. <laughs> yeah, no, please do. I'm because I'm very interested in all the flavors and all that, and I want the audience to hear the possibilities and what you're doing, and and obviously have the opportunity to market yourself. So. You know, I'll just, I'll, I'll prop a question just to help move it along. But what are some of your most popular pound cakes? And I know you said you do them seasonally, but what would you say are the most popular ones? The three, the trio that I always have on my table are the old-fashioned vanilla. It has a little hint of almond flavoring, a luscious lemon, which was a finalist in the Flavor Georgia contest, and then toasted coconut. Um, those three are always on my table. And, um, Vanilla, you have to, it's a good vanilla, um, it's pound cake. So you have to have just the the plain pound cake. Um, Excellent to slice and toast and put some butter on it. Um, And that's a sour cream. I do a cream cheese as well. That's pretty good. Um, The lemon is uh, just made with freshly squeezed lemons, lemon zest. It has a lemon curd swirled throughout the top. And then it uh, has a little lemon simple syrup glaze on top. So it's a really good um, lemon pound cake. It's, it's really tasty, especially with that lemon curd. Um, and then the toasted coconuts made with real coconut, coconut milk and coconut oil. And then it has the toasted coconut on top. So if you're a coconut fan, um, which I am, um, the coconut's really phenomenal. Well, that sounds delicious. And so let's talk, what other, so we're talking, we're going into spring and, uh, or actually or are in spring, I should say, uh, not here in Colorado since we just had a couple of days of snow. I'm sorry, I know. But, um, so, and summer. So let's talk about like, you know, what are some of the other pound cakes you'll do seasonally? Cause I'm just interested. What are some of the spring seasonal ones that you'll have coming around in the, the summer seasonal ones? Sure. Well, right now we're getting ready to go down and get some big buckets of strawberry um, strawberries from Washington Farms. And I will make a strawberry lavender, which is such a great flavor combination. Uh, so we'll have strawberry lavender pound cake and strawberry rhubarb. So my mother used to make strawberry rhubarb pie, and that makes a great pound cake. Also, then we cruise right after strawberries. It's blueberries, and it's a blueberry almond, lemon blueberry. Um so do the different types of fruit, um, apricot, almond. Um, sometimes I'll make those. That doesn't have to be seasonal because I don't use, I use dried apricots for that. But uh, that's, a, that's a good, it's good breakfast pound cake. But I call them when they have a fruit in them like that. Chocolate, double chocolate zucchini with walnuts. Zucchinis, everybody has zucchinis. And people don't realize, some people know that uh, zucchini doesn't really have that much of a flavor. It's more in there to provide moisture. It's a nice moist cake with a lot of chocolate. Yeah, I used to, my mom used to make zucchini bread growing up. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, it's an incredible thing. And it's funny, I didn't think about that until you said that. It gives me a little bit of a throwback. I haven't had zucchini bread in a long time. That's one of the things that I love about when I go to events and I'm giving samples. It's you don't realize what a memory pound cake is to people, especially here in the South, because I hear it time and again. This is just like my mother's pound cake or my grandmother's pound cake. I just relive a memory and um, which is wonderful. 
I mean, and that's a great thing because you have pound cake, it brings back a memory. So it's also, then you have an emotional tie to it. And as a marketing standpoint, that's amazing. Um, what is the difference between a pound cake and a regular cake? A pound cake, actually, uh, a little history behind it. The recipe came from um, Europe, France, um, in the 1700s, and it was called four quartz cake in France. Um, but it was called a pound cake because it was a pound of sugar, a pound of butter, a pound of flour, and a pound of eggs. That's how they weighed it and made it. It was a very dense cake. Over time, people have added um, flavoring. They would early on, they'd have had rose water, um, uh, wine, whiskey, rum, whatever, something to give a little bit of flavor. But um, a pound cake is it's more of a dense cake than um, a regular cake. It's the amount of ingredients, the balance. I think that's I think that's awesome. Actually, the, the I didn't know that it was a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, and a pound of butter. Is that what you said it was? Mm-hmm. And a pound of eggs. And a mm-hmm. pound of eggs. Like I, and it's an easy to remember recipe. Obviously now, but that is that's an interesting way of doing it. I actually so it is different than other cake, but I actually thought it was something more complicated than that. Your answer was so simple. I'm like actually lost for words because I was prepared. Okay, it's going to be complicated. I'll go into a line of questionings on the pound cake, but I'm like, okay, that was so straightforward. It seems to make sense. And four quarts cake, I guess is uh, four quarts cake. Yeah. So a quart is a pound basically, right? Right. Um, That was the original. So things have changed. You know, people have added things. Um, I do sour cream pound cake is basically all of my my basic recipe is a sour cream pound cake recipe. Um, I love sour cream. It gives it a nice moist flavor. Um, But I love the history that's behind that, um, that you can go back and see where it came to this country in the 1700s. It's up on the history of my place, too. love history. I uh, I love history as well, and, the, and I'm fascinated by that. I didn't realize that it was actually from Europe, and I don't even... Can you even get it? Is it still called Four Quarts Cake in France, or is it Pound Cake? I'm not, I'm not sure if it is or not. I belong to a Facebook page. Um, a couple of years ago, a lady from France had commented uh, that they learned to make Pound Cake when they're in elementary school. That's one of their requirements, oh, wow. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Like that's such a thing there, and they'll make um, a savory pound cake too. Um, it has cheese and meats and things in it, which I've never tried that. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense. I guess you get a salty and a sweet sort of in the same flavor, or maybe they use less sugar. But I, if it's a pound of each, I guess you can't. Yeah. It was interesting because France has come up with a lot of stuff in food, and I know everywhere in the world has great things that are true to them and and things like that. But I can't remember. Deborah and I were just somewhere this weekend, and we learned something else came from France. Or oh, it's called a French tuck, which is a way of tucking in the front of your shirt and not the back of your shirt. And I'm like, uh-huh. they get uh, just all this stuff comes out of there, and they get named after everything. But you just did it to me again, which is the pound cake originally originated from France. I guess they could call it French cake uh, instead. But okay, so tell me, you know, so you've now 
got your business up and running, you're, you're moving. Tell me about, um, I'm still like, wow, that's so simple of a recipe. It mind boggles me, but tell me about how you chose to festivals. And, and so you're in this whole festival circuit and you're obviously successful in it because I've looked at your webpage since we've been on the podcast and you have all of them listed there in your schedule. And, um, I mean, you're basically like a pound cake rock star. I mean, you're on tour basically (laughs) with the pound cake. So tell me about how you decide which ones to go to. Is that trial and error? And, you know, talk to me a little bit about that and what actually it's like to be at the festivals and things like that. Sure. It, it is um, a bit of trial and error. And then you end up meeting vendors that become, it's almost like a little family um, network. Um, you talk to them and where have they been? I had a gentleman that was at the cherry blossom festival three years ago and he pulled me aside. He comes up from, um, he does like pickles and relishes and things. And he comes up from Florida and like, you come all the way from Florida. He said, yes. He said, and if you want to go to some good festivals, follow Ginny's Nuts and Fudge. And uh, she was, she was there and she was great too. She was very gracious. And so you run into um, other vendors that are successful and they're really nice and will share their information. And uh, so he said, whatever she goes to, and she, on her page, she's got a list of events. So that's how I, I was like, okay, I will follow Denny's Nuts and Fudge. So I signed up for a lot of festivals that she went to. And um, and then you just, you have to take a lot of things into consideration too. Um, there's a lot of cost that goes into going to one that's out of state. Um, so, um, but going to the festivals is so much fun. It's hard work. Um, there's a lot there's set up to it, but I love being there as long as the weather cooperates. Yeah. <laughs> never know. I do have some friends that were at a festival this past weekend, the Dogwood Festival going on. They had to shut it down yesterday because of the tornadoes um, that were coming through. So there's always that risk um, that you put a lot of money into vendor fees and travel expenses and all that. So there's always that risk. But when everything comes together, the weather, the people come and, and come to buy, it is a beautiful thing. Um, and so you just, um, yeah, you get a lot of advice from other vendors, um, do some networking and, um, and trial and error. So I, I started out sometimes, um, you, you learn which ones to avoid. Um, and it depends on the scale, too. You know, I don't want to sound like, I'll just avoid certain festivals. Where do you want to be? What your product is? Um, some everybody likes food, though, so that kind of it's easier for me than uh, for some other vendors that have some other type of um, product that they're trying to sell. But um, everybody about ten thirty in the morning is hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's and so true. Pound cake, buy them. <laughs> so you know that makes it easier. But, yeah, it's been trial and error. And then repetition, too. You want to come back. The, the vessels that were pretty good, you want to come uh, back to Brazelton. I'm preparing for that. That was the very first one I told you about early on that I went with laundry soap um, years ago. It was in 2013. And they do four vessels now a year. And um, I'll be at the 
be the one at the end of this month and it's a three-day festival and now I have a following. So I'll have a line and people know to buy early. Don't, don't be one of those there that say, I'll get these on the way back because I don't want to carry them around because I'll be sold out. So people know that. So there will be a line and it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you really are. You're a pound cake rock star. You have groupies that wait for you there. And... Uh, <laughs> And a whole following. I mean, it's incredible. And one of the things I like that you shared is that when you guys do the festivals, like you, while your competitors at the event say the, um, I believe you said Jenny's Nuts and Fudge. Yeah. And you're kind of competitors because you, if you think about, oh, if someone buys something from me, they may not buy it from the other person. But what people don't realize is grouping together a bunch of food vendors or competition like you guys, you're actually attracting more people to the event. And so it's a, it's a little bit of, you know, a s- smaller slice of a much bigger pie is often more money. And, you know, right. because then if people are buying stuff and they're buying fudge, you know, they can still buy pound cake. And even if there's another pound cake person there, it's still attracting more people and maybe more people like pound cake. And now they're trying, they want to try both types of pound cake. So, you know, competition isn't an exclusive thing. I feel like, and what people don't realize in food is, you know, competition is not necessarily bad. And there's a, it sharpens you. Yeah, exactly. And, Mm -hmm. and one of the things is people don't know, and there's a fast food chain called Culver's that came out of the Midwest and they, they make butter burgers and, you know, it's just like, it sounds they cook the butt burger and butter. And, um, one of the things that their whole marketing strategy was, is that they would literally open up their restaurant across the street or next to McDonald's everywhere they went. And, what in McDonald's at first, like, oh my gosh, this is a bad thing. But what it actually did was it increased the amount of people going to McDonald's and Culver's. And then a lot of fast food chains then picked up on that. And a lot of fast food chains do that because why? Because if I'm a family on the road, I can now, okay, I want McDonald's. Okay. Drive through McDonald's. Okay. I want Taco Bell or KFC. Okay. We can go through there. And then a person can also have a Wendy's or a Culver's burger. So what they were doing is actually appealing to everyone. And it's the same thing you're talking about. Not everyone loves pound cake. So why not benefit the fudge and not everyone loves fudge. So why not benefit the pound cake and just get more people there? And, and, you know, and the more people see people buying stuff, the more likely they're willing to buy stuff. So I love the whole festival and, and farmer's market circuit thing. And I, you know, it's hard because some of them you don't go well, and it's obviously a huge cost to going like you talked about. But I love it from the perspective of, one, you're marketing directly to your consumers. Like you're the person that's building the brand. You're the entrepreneur. You're the one cooking the pound cake or baking it, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And you're there dealing with the customers. So, I mean, so you have customers, you have these fans. How do you manage the relationships with them? Do, is it something that you they know you're coming every year or they already know because they're going to the festival? I mean, tell me about that. Do they order from okay. you online then? And, and how does all of that work? There's a variety of ways. I, I've got a lot of faithful um, customers that order online from all over the country. And um, I've got a couple people that it's every two weeks that get two pounds of granola. Someone in Texas, someone in Georgia, South Georgia, Pennsylvania. Um, they just love the granola. Um, 
And then there's other, and then I have a huge um, base of Outlander fans that love it, especially if there is an event for a birthday for an Outlander fan. Um, the Pitsy Laird Day is really, really popular. But um, festivals, people that are local now is just getting out on Facebook pages um, where I am, but I've moved. And uh, when you go to festivals, being able to tell the customers, you can also go online. You can follow me online. There's an event page, like me on Facebook um, to see where I am next. <clears throat> That's one of the things I like now is I can talk up my retail spot because they can, a lot of people from, Georgia or Atlanta area go to Helen to the Northeast Georgia mountains. It's like you can stop by and get a pound cake on the way. So there's that. But also I offer gluten free. Um, there's, and that's from the farmer's markets. Um, there's a lot of people that are gluten free. My daughter's gluten sensitive. Um, so I do a really a great, great flour mixture. It's rice free and it's made with ancient grains and it gives a fabulous texture the cake so people that are gluten-free and try this cake um, really love it but um, and then I developed a there's a lot of diabetics too um, so I have a jar cake that is a chocolate cake in a jar it has a chocolate ganache and it's a gluten-free sugar-free and dairy-free and there's nothing artificial in it um, and that's one of the things when I started I wanted all my ingredients to be whole foods compliant in case I want to get into whole foods <laughs> Yeah. So I've tried to keep that, um, that um, just doing that. And so with doing anything that is sugar-free, usually you have to substitute um, with an artificial sweetener. The cake is sweetened with local raw honey, and the ganache is sweetened with organic maple syrup. So and um, it's low-carb, but it's also very tasty. I have to tell my two... Um, teenage boys and I have to tell them, no, you cannot have the dark cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're eating the profits. Um, yeah. So let's talk about, you mentioned that the you have two teenage sons and a daughter, so you have three children. Is that correct? I do, yeah. And, and a granddaughter. And a granddaughter. Wow. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about all of that. I mean, you're managing you know, being a mother, you're managing this new business in a new store. I mean, how do you balance it? And, you know, because a lot of people dive too much into one thing or another. So how do you balance all of it? You do have to balance. And really, it's been a great thing for my kids. Of course, Lauren is, um, she has her own family now. So she comes to visit and she has helped me out before. And she's great at festivals. She can really sell and, and she's just a real honest person. So she's, she comes with as um, um, in a great way for, for selling at, um, at events. And my sons are also learning the same thing. They're learning um, uh, skills, social skills. Um, when they go to festivals, they can wait on, which has been awesome because before I would be there all day long by myself and really hard. You can't take a bathroom break. Um, you, know, you don't want to miss customers and, and all that. And uh, now they can come, and I'll be like, I'm, I'm going to check out other vendors. I'm going to visit people. I'm going to the restroom. I'm going to have lunch, and they can take over. Um, so it's been really good for them um, to see all this. So they'll come with me now, and we have a great time together. So that's just sort of uh, another blessing in this whole process. It's been good for them, and bless their hearts. They're proud of me. <laughs> 
and they'll tell me that. So they, they're very encouraging. And um, it's, a, it's been a good thing. I've seen family businesses before. And excuse me, let me just turn my phone off. That's okay. I actually, I, I love that that just happened because the Scottish music and us talking about the heritage and uh, Ancestry.com, I'm going to leave that in just because I think that was incredible. It truly shows your passion for your heritage. Yeah, that is, uh, that's the theme to Outlander. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I actually recognize the music, so I'll have to talk to Deborah. I'm sure she probably knows a little bit about it and... Um, but anyway, back to the topic of your children, and I talk about it a lot on this podcast, is one of the greatest things I feel like we do as entrepreneurs is pass it on to our children because it's not an education that they get in school. They don't teach business in high school or in elementary school or whatever in the same way that they can learn it from us. So having not only that base education that they learn in school, but getting the education of being an entrepreneur from a parent like yourself, I mean, that's... It's in it's I mean it's unbelievable and the a lot of entrepreneurs it's passed down an entrepreneur passes on the entrepreneurial uh, spirit from someone else and so actually that brings up another question so one I love what you're doing and I think it's so important that your kids have that as an education and an opportunity so um, you know I give you props for that for sure that's awesome but do you yourself have an entrepreneurial background or it's your family or I mean it's it's a lot just to say hey I'm going to go do this and and have the courage <laughs> to do it I just um I think it's in the blood I don't know um my grandmother uh, started a store out in the country when just after the great depression and um she you know when women just didn't do that she started a little store my mother would run it sometimes when they had the farm going. That was up in West Virginia, in Preston County. And um, I don't know. I just really like the thought of making money. Um, I like, I've, of course, worked for other people. Um, but I like um, working for myself. And um, my sister had started a little magazine, a little local magazine, um, before I had met my husband. And she ended up getting sick, and um, I started working with her, and I had to take it over, and I loved it. Um, it was a mailer. We mailed 10,000 copies every month, and uh, you just really became a part of the community. I love selling ads, and I like talking to people, and um, I like making things make more money. <laughs> so, yeah. so I got it to grow, and... Um, it uh, really, you know, took off. It was uh, the Buford Free Delivery um, in Buford, Georgia. And uh, so that that was fun for me. And then when my husband and I got married, I um, took over his secretarial um, business. He was um, he had his own practice. He specialized in sports medicine, and he traveled all up and down the East Coast. And so I like promoting his um, his business. Um, I spoke to is I set up all of his um, appointments and his clients. I knew them. I knew, you know, tried to know as much as about them as I could and would do follow-up calls and tried to just really grow his business. And I think I did a pretty good job at that. But, um, 
And then I really liked what he did. Of course, I, I getting back to what we've spoken about before. Um, I liked the ride as well. And um, so I came at Equine Sports Massage Therapist and we kind of worked together. So that was a lot of fun. But, um, so that was more of, you know, just wanting to do my own thing. And uh, so the thought of going to work for somebody else just. Yeah. It becomes hard when someone else wants to dictate your schedule for you or you don't have the flexibility to be there for your kids or the things that you want to do or your significant other and and things like that. I think it's just one of those things. And to ever go back, I can never imagine if I ever had to go back to an office or an office job or a nine to five where my hours were dictated for me, where I couldn't work as hard as I wanted when I wanted to and have the flexibility to be there for my stepdaughters and, and Deborah and my family and all that. I just, I would lose my mind and, um, you know, and I like the freedom of it. And, you know, it's sometimes it's, I work as hard as I work depends on how much, you know, money comes in or, and sometimes it's not that way. So it's, uh, it's just one of those things where I love the beauty of being an entrepreneur. I love the beauty of the relationships that we form as entrepreneurs. Um, that's a whole, it's an amazing thing. And, uh, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about just, and we're going to go off on another tangent, but I know what it is because I grew up on a horse farm, but tell me a little bit about what an equine massage therapist does. Uh, well, Equine massage therapist, what I did was incorporate different um, modalities. I didn't stick with just massage work and body work. Um, I did, I watched a lot. Ron was a um, equine chiropractor and he did acupuncture. So um, I couldn't do a lot of what he did. I did acupressure. Um, um, I took courses at the Chi Institute for um, massage, more medical, Chinese medical massage and um, did Don Duran's um, massage therapy school down outside of Ocala, which he's excellent. Don Duran is. And uh, so I had sort of a shoe in just um, because of Ron and who he knew and, and following him and watching him. And he was, he was very good in what he did. So I combined different modalities and just sort of had a routine of working on a horse where I go over them and then I do deep stretching and massage and I would usually end everything acupressure and then end everything with electrical therapy. So using a tens unit usually on um just on their backs. They usually have most of the issues but Yeah, the same as yeah. athletes use and I in my yeah. soccer days I used quite a bit of that and actually I just bought one another one because of working out all the time I'm getting sore and it's become one of those things that it's just a good treatment to get blood flow and things like that to places exactly yeah but I mean people don't realize it but I mean horses are I mean they're athletes basically especially when they're ridden or in whatever whether they're uh lassoing cattle and uh in the um why is it going blank but they're um you know, whether they're showing in their dressage horses or they're just riding uh, on a farm to, to help um, the ranch and, and do the cattle or they're, um, why am I going blank, barrel racing and things like that. And, the, you know, it depends on what they do, but they're all such, they're athletes, really. I mean, they need to be fed, yeah. right? They need to be monitored. They need to, they need the proper exercise and the proper stretching and the, you know, making sure, you know, I remember like growing up and 
my mom stretching all the horse's legs before they, they, they went out and, you know, they're, they do get injured. And so you're trying to avoid injury because just like an athlete, you're investing time and money into them and they need to perform and they, they're ridden. And so, you know, that's hard work for the horse mm-hmm. and it's just incredible the athleticism you know and some horses are more athletic than others and the whole thing and it just teaches you so much and then the whole bond that happens between a rider and a horse and or an owner and it's and the horse just becomes so amazing and horses can i mean if they are lucky they can live up to 30 years plus um but generally you get, you know, a good 20 to 25 years with a horse and they're your companion, you know, and, uh, it's just a, it's an incredible thing. And the whole athleticism of a horse is just blows my mind and different breeds of different horses do great things. Quarter horses, they can run a quarter of a mile faster than any other horse. That's why they're good for barrel racing and, and working on farms yeah and then Mm -hmm. you have thoroughbreds who are obviously your racehorses because they're taller and they're they have longer legs so of course they're faster over longer distances and Mm -hmm. it's just it's an incredible thing and so i didn't mean to go down the tangent it was really just um my going back in the day and, and living the horse thing but i was curious and i wanted the audience to know you know that there is this out there because not many people know how much time and care it takes to take care of animals. Uh, we talked a little bit about the coyotes and the chickens, but it's also horses and, and other animals. I mean, if you're making an athlete, you got to treat them like an athlete. And so it is, it's, you do. it's a cool thing. It is. And anything that anybody would want to get into, they'd want to research it first. Um, I've seen people just jump in and say, I'm going to go get a horse or, um, or you'll have somebody that's in pet school that has never been around horses and think, I'm, I think I'll be an equine veterinarian. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You really need to. It is You have to spend a lot of time around because you've got to know their body language. They're big animals and you can get hurt so easily. But, um, yeah, you really need to do your research on, uh, on the care of them. Where you get them. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's one of the things why my growing up, my mom, while we trained and bred and and did show circuits and all that or my family did I, I stuck to the soccer side but I was involved in horses and showed a little bit here and there growing up but the thing is is you really need to go take a lesson somewhere and and learn how to the care of the horse and the amount of time it takes and all of that because it's a you know it's it's not your dog where you just feed it and it follows you around and you just let it out to go to the bathroom no they need to be worked and they they need to be ridden and there's a lot of time and effort and maintenance that goes on and horses are like dogs in in ways that the trust has to be mutual it's not you just don't earn a horse's trust and they just don't earn your trust like it takes a relationship and building it and i love it because growing up that way and having to deal with horses um and and knowing that trust and and how it happened and all that i mean it's the way we should be as human beings right we often trust to people too quickly or or don't trust people at all but it's something that in a balanced relationship that you trust each other i mean right i trust the horse that it's not going to buck me off and i trust and he trusts me that i'm not going to treat him poorly and i'm going to take care of him and you build this relationship that's just so amazing. We we're talking about how smart coyotes were, but it actually amazes me how smart horses are. Like 
I mean, we yeah. let them with halters, but when my parents would go away, I'd get lazy sometimes and watch the farm. And I could literally open the gate and the horses would know, would make their own way to the barn. You know, most uh-huh. of them know which, stall and, and know which stall to go into, you know, and they knew when it was time to go out. They, they know the time it's feeding time. And craziest mm-hmm. thing is, you know, during the winter, you, you let them out during the day and in the barn during the night because it's cold and you flip flop it during the summer. And they almost know exactly when that time of year is like when it happened. Right. And yeah. I'm just like unbelievable and just such intelligent animals. And I've seen them, you know, we've gotten stuck in snowstorms and stuff like that. And they know how to dig up the snow and get to the grass and stay warm and, and, you know, and, and dig their way, you know, up to the barn if they have to and, and help. And it's just kind of crazy. You're like, Oh man, like they, they're really intelligent. Thankfully weather patterns aren't like that. And we're more predictable now. Snowstorm doesn't come out of the middle of nowhere, but it's, right. um, it's crazy. And even water buckets, like they freeze and things like that. And they figure out ways to unfreeze, you know, make their way at the water. Although literally I've seen them stand over the water trough outside, just all four horses breathing on it to try to get the ice to melt so they can, uh-huh. can lick it or they'll just lick the, the ice. And it's just such an incredible thing uh, to watch actually. And or they'll but try it, to get their hoof in there. Right? The yeah, ice, yeah. Yeah. They'll get their hoof in there and, and break open the ice. And it's just so cool. And even if streams and stuff like that and frozen, they'll figure out ways to, to make their way into that and, and dig up the ground and move stuff around and try to move, break the ice. So it's so cool. Um, it is. And even uh, that, and when a storm's coming, how they'll just drop their head and put their tail to the wind. Yeah. Yeah. They All know. Like, I know. And like, even like, you're like, Oh my gosh, why are you standing under a tree? It's a lightning storm, but they know that they can, they, that's a place to stay warm. And I'm like, you know, and they stay in groups most of the time when that happens and to keep even warmer. And you're like, it's just, it makes sense obviously as, but we just, we don't think about as human, how smart everything else is. So yeah, I love the little tangents. Brings me back. You're the, you talked about the pound cakes bringing back memories. You're bringing back memories of my childhood and on the yeah, farm. Yeah, so we could talk forever about that because I I love I belong to the Shenandoah Valley Pony Club and I just love the Shenandoah Valley. So pretty up there. And uh, just the I don't know they're beautiful animals and they're just so mm-hmm. amazing. So my they really l- are. My last question as, as we sort of keep talking is, you know, one of the re- reasons we're talking is because the flavor of Georgia and, and we've talked a little bit about Georgia grown also, but I really, and everyone's like, Oh, we talk about it all the time on this podcast, but I really, and I love everyone's opinion of it, but it's such an important thing that Georgia is doing both through the flavor of Georgia and Georgia grown and the department of agriculture and the department of economic development and all of that. So, I mean, tell me about your experience with flavor of Georgia and Georgia grown and what it means to you as a business person. Well, they help promote uh, small businesses um, in Georgia. They promote Georgia businesses. And I think it's very important um, be a member of Georgia Grown if you're a business owner here. Um, you can also be a member of Georgia Grown if you're not in Georgia, but you use Georgia ingredients or products. 
Um, it helps to support uh, the, the agriculture department um, and businesses in Georgia. Um, Flavor of Georgia has been such a great avenue for small businesses to showcase their product um, and to get support behind it. Um, I was a finalist this year, and I've just really it's opened up um, even more wholesale. I'm also on Georgia Crafted, so that is a uh, business. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Georgia Crafted, where they have products from Georgia that is um, sort of a gift box um, you can order and get different products from Georgia. And she's very particular about um, what products she has. So, um, but she's got a great, great business that's taken off. Um, and she likes to access um, any of the flavored Georgia finalists or whatever to get in the Georgia crafted. So my pound cakes are there now. Um, but it's, they've just done a great job. And it keeps growing and getting better. And they'll have um, different uh, – there was a symposium in Macon a few weeks ago um, and just a lot of just informational um, classes that you can take to help your business and – I took my boys to that. It was good for them to go. And we tag team because there were classes I wanted to be in that were at the same time. So one of them went and took notes for me. And but, um, yeah, no, I can't say enough good things about it. And I encourage anybody um, that I know that has a business that please become a, a member of Georgia Grand. Yeah, I think it's incredible. And one of the unfortunate things is you were a finalist this year in the Flavor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had talked a little bit about it before we got on the podcast. You had trying to you had entered the contest the last four years, I believe. I had. And so, what was the product that got you into the Flavor of Georgia this year? Luscious lemon. Uh, so is that, that the luscious one? Luscious lemon pound cake. The one we talked about with the lemon simple syrup which I'm, yes. I drooled over once you talked Love about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it's unfortunate. So, I mean, you weren't able to attend the actual final event, which is unfortunate because you got sick. But, I mean, was that heartbreaking? It was so heartbreaking. I cried. Yes, it was awful. I um, I was so, number one, I was so excited. It was like I hit the lottery. Um, I had prepared. I had this great speech. I had it nailed down. Um, I had ordered, um, my daughter was going to come with me. Um, I was going to pull her and the kids in because they've been a support team for me. And, um, we just had a great story to to, um, to share. And I had my whole setup. Um, like I want a burlap, um, table cover that's fringed. And I, so I, I purchased one in South Florida and had it shipped to some other company that pinched it for me and um, had it set up and it looked really good. I was so disappointed. I really, <laughs> it was, um, yeah, I was very sad. It was a very sad day. I mean, so. Like I said, earlier when we were talking, I thought that I got up and we had, it was pollen that was out here and um, everything's starting to bloom. And so a couple of days before that, I started getting a sore throat and I thought that's what that was. And I know that morning. I was terrified that it was a flu, but thank goodness it wasn't. Well, I mean, and as an entrepreneur, I mean, it's hard to make a decision like that. Some people push themselves through that and and make it sick. So, I mean, how do you decide whether or not you push yourself through it or you just say, okay, 
I, as, as much as I want this and want to be there, I need to, to not go and take care of myself. Well, you have to have this thing called serve safe <laughs> certification. And, um, you can't, you cannot serve food, prepare food, serve food. If you have a contagious, uh, if you have a fever, that's so that would not be. And, um, so in another circumstance, I don't know whether I could have probably pushed through to do something. Um, I was not feeling too well, though. Pretty tough when you get a temperature. Yeah, and we all... That was the other thing. My voice was gone. Well, I think it's... um, And that you touched upon the serve safe thing, I think that's so important because a lot of people in the audience probably don't, unless you're a food entrepreneur, don't understand what that is, which is basically the, the... the basic certification you get for serving food safely is basically just like mm-hmm. it sounds and um and what that means and all the different regulations and how to store food and how to cook it and what the temperatures need to be and how to write cross contamination plans and so that cross contamination doesn't happen and things like that so um your answer was again so simple and so obvious I'm like oh yeah that would make sense and so but um the audience definitely, you know, there's the reason they have those protocols in places is so when things happen, like you just said, you're sick and it could be contagious that you can't serve food. And so there's an easy decision. So this decision is actually made for you if you look at the things you've been taught. So I love that. And I said it was my last question before, but I do have one more as we, we wrap up and, uh, so, Ellen, if you could go back to five years ago when you started this business, what advice would you give yourself now? I would say don't get discouraged. Um, there have not been many times that I've been discouraged, but, um, you know, when little things happen, it's just, just don't, don't be, don't take things personal and um, just push through. Awesome. Because sometimes it's not about you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I and I say this a lot, and people I mentor, people that work for me, or just in general when life happens, is it's not about what happens to us. It's about what happens for us. Because I think everything that happens, there's a chance to grow and a chance to learn and, and educate ourselves in, in ways and pivot and, and better things, really, honestly. And, you know, if it's not going right, then I'm not doing it correctly or there's another way I need to look at it or what is my part in it that I'm doing wrong and I need to fix. So I, I think there's just so much there to what you said and, and being discouraged. I, I love that because you said it earlier in the podcast is not to be discouraged because it doesn't right. really help anything. You know, all we can do is yeah. just take it for what it is. We can't control it and, and we need to move forward and we need to learn from it in order for it to not happen again. So exactly. it, it's yeah. one of those cool things. So Ellen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I, and I actually really look forward to asking you to be on the podcast again in the next eight to 10 months to hear how your store's going. So if you'd like to be on the you podcast again, I would love to have you back on and, and release another episode in about a year. And I'd love to, yeah. Talk about the trials and tribulations of your store because you were right at the point where you're opening it up. So I think the audience would love to hear how that goes and that new aspect in your life as an entrepreneur. Stay tuned. We'll see where things go. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, thank you again. And this is just in the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. If you guys like what we're doing and, and like Ellen's story, please share it. Please share it on social media. Tell your friends. Tell your family. You know, she's giving away a lot of information. She volunteers her time to be on the podcast. And what we're hearing here is great things. And you're not alone out there if you're an entrepreneur. There's plenty of us out there that, that go through the trials and tribulations of life and, and business. So thank you all for listening in and have a great day. Thank you.